Hey everybody, welcome back to another podcast. Today I'm sitting in my office and the sky is gray. It has this um, almost ominous quality to it. The wind is stiff. It seems like not only is fall here, but winter is coming. And here in West Michigan, that means months of grayness and clouds and overcast. And things go quiet here. I don't know, we're almost forced into a kind of hibernation. And I don't know, just this morning, there's something about the weather even that seems to reflect a kind of darkening cloud cover in our culture right now. I was all set to talk about mythic imagination. I wanted to make a part two from my last podcast, and I'll get to it, but I don't know. I just can't today. This past weekend, I was teaching at a place called C3 here in West Michigan. You can look it up. Um, I'm doing about half the Sundays a year there. And I'm very much enjoying it. It's a very interesting, dynamic, creative, um, spiritual community here in in Michigan. And um, as as part of my talk, I was thinking a bit about Noah. And I had done a uh, a talk at a Christian bookstore recently. And I did a little Q&A afterwards. And within a few minutes, someone asked me a question about Noah, I thought. I mean, I had kind of a a strange, um, seemed a bit out of the blue. Because my my new book is, I don't mention anything about Noah. I mean, I have a chapter on the Bible and what I call moving beyond Bible worship uh, and literalism. And... They, I guess they wanted to know in a straightforward way if I thought the story of Noah was literal. And I said, no, it's a myth. And I found myself trying to almost defend, maybe that's not the right word, but say at the same time that I thought the Noah story was true, which is a hard thing to communicate. It's a myth, yes, and that's what makes it true. And it's related to other myths from that time period, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, which contains a very similar flood story. Some of the same animals are involved. Uh, Some of the same timelines are involved. So in this area of the world, they were sharing this uh, profound story about a man, a dreamer, uh, uh, a kind of crazy person who built a boat and set out for a world that no one could imagine, not a single person could imagine. They thought he was a nutty person. And his imagination was big enough where he was thinking not just about himself, but also his family, and not just about his family, but the animals and all of the animals that he could dream up and set out for a new world. And I don't know, I was riffing a bit on that this past Sunday because it occurred to me after this Q&A, and someone else, uh, two other people actually, also wanted to talk about the Noah story, it occurred to me, 
that something deeper is at work. And in part, it's, I think, the stories of floods that are happening right now. And they're not stories, they're real events, real cataclysmic, life-altering, killer storms keep coming up into our world and the the tide keeps rising and many of us unless you're like a crazy uh fundamentalist preacher are not saying that god or the divine is causing these storms for this or that reason actually the the most nuanced question is in what way by our own lust and greed have we contributed to the ingredients of these storms with things like climate change and also our greed to live in these so-called paradise locations with almost no thought of how nature does what nature does in these places in the world, on islands and coastlines and peninsulas. We think, well, it's pretty, so it's ours for the taking. So it's a very humbling, humbling time to, to be alive and I keep thinking about Puerto Rico. I have some, I have a friend who's from Puerto Rico, and it's just amazing. She was saying that overnight, and Puerto Rico had a, um, its economy and its way of life was already struggling in many respects, and overnight it becomes a third world country, or really worse, with a single storm, it seems to knock it back to a different century. And so we have the rising flood, and we seem to have a kind of rising flood of cataclysmic change happening at every level of society. I kept thinking about those NFL protests, and what was so profound about them to me was not the rhetoric, it's about the flag, or, or veterans, or you don't support America, but just hinting that race is still an issue in our country. It's like the curtain of our own history gets peeled back just a little bit and you glimpse a much darker chapter and story of what it means to be an American that still is operative. It's still functioning, even though we can go through periods where it doesn't appear to be front and center. So what tide is rising there? And um, the kind of fear that other people and immigrants and undocumented people are going to take over our way of life seems to contribute to this flood um, and the anxiety that comes with it, not to mention global markets and how little people have as a savings backup plan, how our modern way of life can be decimated with just 24 hours of strong wind. It's a crazy time to be alive. And maybe every generation thinks, well, the, the, you know, this time is certainly the worst time. I imagine those who fought in World War II could not imagine a kind of horror, just like those in World War I couldn't imagine a kind of horror that was worse than what they had experienced. And I'm sure the world seemed to be collapsing all around them. And yet here we are, uh, 100 years later, 70 years later, um, 
But the stakes keep getting higher. More and more people live on this floating green and blue ball, unless you're a flat earther, this cracker-like disc floating through the air. Um, And yeah, there are many more of us now. And the potential for things like nuclear war and um, annihilating an entire country, its leadership, its infrastructure, its plants and animals with a single push of a button or several buttons. I don't know how it works. Yeah, it's a scary time to be alive. And I think there is some deep, deep existential anxiety that all of us are feeling. And and of course, we woke up this week to yet another tragedy. And everybody's talking about it. From televangelists to comedians to presidents to your Facebook friends, and now to me, I just mentioned it. Um, the flood is rising. And sometimes it feels paralyzing. And I keep thinking about this poem by Yeats, which is what I shared at C3 this past weekend. And maybe you know it. It's called The Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. That seems to sum up so much of our disconnection from meaning, from truth, from beauty, from goodness, from peace, from a healthy, mutually beneficial relationship with the natural world, turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. I think I feel that sometimes on the soul level. And I think as a culture, we cannot hear the falconer. Whatever the falconer is, the voice, this homing voice of meaning and truth and beauty and goodness the soul, you could even say God, you could put, maybe Yeats wouldn't, I don't know, but the divine is the falconer, the wellspring of life itself. The falcon seems to be way off somewhere. And how many of our leaders seem so far from the goodness of their own souls and hearts and from a compassionate and empathetic and less divisive view of the world. They can't hear. And our culture can't hear. Things fall apart, Yeats says. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And that seems more true this morning than it did even last week. The blood dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. I think America 
part of its perhaps blessing and curse or golden thread and its darkened shadow is its kind of innocence. Its innocence, for example, those settlers, we call them, who come into the country with a kind of blind optimism and innocence, even thinking, hey, God gave us this. So much of um, the founding of America is really theological and rooted in a certain view of God and a certain view of the Bible and certain assumptions. And even the idea that um, we can take this land, because God gave it to us, from these, uh, from the native people who, in order to do such a thing, had to be one-third of a person, had to be somehow less than what we are, less than fully human savages. Um, this innocence, which is, and, and, and optimism, which is praised so much in America, has a dark side, has a shadow side, causes violence and destruction and massacre. At the same time, we, you can't deny the fact that America what became a place of innovation and change and growth and, um, and something flourished. Even a word like freedom began to be born um, maybe in a new way uh, or at least conceived of in a new way. All men are created equal. Is profound, really, even though they meant just men and they meant just white men, that was a seed, like a tiny little juniper seed that could grow into something that not even our founding fathers even anticipated, which could include native people and what were considered less than human slaves and even women who couldn't vote. Um, They'd be unable to take a political office at one time. The, the innocence of America, which I already said has, has a shadow side, has a light side as well. And certainly people experienced a new freedoms here and freedom of religion and without the government interfering, although that seems to be, you know, even being threatened at the, at the moment when everybody is claiming God in the middle of this tragedy and the ongoing tragedies. Everybody wants God on their side. Initially, it's just thoughts and prayers, but then it turns into, well, actually, God supports my political positions and the mixing of religion and politics, which has always been there, um, is seen for the, or the separation of church and state is seen for the illusion that it really is. And I think the American experiment is, in a way, uh, the innocence of which is drowned now, or is drowning in a sea of immigrants and um, and, a, and a rising tide of an intractable and unworkable demo democratic system that is gridlocked and deathly afraid to do any kind of searching moral inventory and we would say do the right thing I would say do the right thing 
for the most number of people that would lead to the most peace and well-being and health care of all of its citizens will is just locked turning and turning getting further and further away from the falconer so i think we just live in that that season and and then uh, it says something powerful the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity and that's what sells passionate intensity and outbursts and zeal and chanting and um, public displays of passion and intensity. And the best seem to lack the conviction to stand up. Very rare do we hear that, do we hear of that. Or we have to hunt around for it, maybe is a better way to say it. So this is an apocalyptic poem. And I mean it in the truest sense of um, apocalyptic thinking, which is the death or destruction of a world and a worldview and of a system, a political system, like in the book of Revelation, it's Rome is the background, the collapse and the tiny rebirth of a remnant of a new beginning, of a starting over. All apocalyptic literature has this cycle of collapse and renewal. And, of course, it's been terribly abusing Christianity. I don't mind talking about that sometime later, maybe. I have a chapter in my new book, Ending in Times and Coming Back to Earth, this idea that Jesus is going to suck everybody up with a vacuum cleaner into a better world has done so much damage to people's hearts and souls, to the earth itself into how we've treated our neighbors, thinking it's all going to end in a fire anyway, so what's the point? Very, very unhealth, unhealthy and a, and, a, and a poor reading of, of what these texts meant originally anyway. Um, but apocalyptic times, the death and renewal of something, like Phyllis Tickle talked about the 500-year cycles and the death of... And the last one was 500 years ago, the Reformation, the collapse and unraveling of a, a worldview and a system and something that felt stuck and entrenched. And it seems like we're right in the middle of another one, another 500-year upheaval. And even the industrial age, which, with its promise that technology will save us, we're learning more and more, even though technological advances can be great, do not feed the soul. Do not feed the soul. Even the idea that people have access to information is not the same thing as growing in wisdom and acting like an elder and keeping in mind the next seven generations. Just because you can look something up on your phone doesn't mean you know what to do with what you found on your phone. And I'm talking to myself. I'm thinking right now of David White's poem, This is Not the Age of Information. This is Not the Age of Information. And we say, yes, it is. He says something like, this is a time for loaves and fishes, where one good word is bread for a thousand. So the age of information actually increases our hunger for meaning and for depth and for contact with soul. And I mean soul like our deepest, truest place in the world. 
um, the place we were meant to inhabit, and that all people are inhabit, and all creatures are to inhabit uh, a world of flourishing. Um, yeah, so we live in kind of a in a kind of apocalypse, and what's really sort of frightening is that the worst the ancient people could imagine was like a worldwide flood, or an, uh, an eruption, a volcanic eruption, which happened just prior to the writing of the book of Revelation, by the way, with Vesuvius, which I think probably, you know, it's hard to get into the mind of the author, John, but I'm sure formed his psychic state and his view of the world in writing Revelation or, um, and who knows what we even mean by writing, but even uh, through his imagination and visions imagining these apocalyptic scenes, the worst they could imagine was really nature. And yet a storm, even a storm the size of the state of Texas or larger, still might not cause as much damage as a singular, single uh, weapon of mass destruction flying up from the depths of the ocean out of a submarine and onto villages and towns and whether that be at the trigger of the American uh, military and uh, our president or some other trigger happy um, megalomaniac out there. So what am I saying? I'm saying apocalyptic times. It, it seems like the idea that our own ingenuity can cause our own destruction, our own lust and greed for technology without um, meaning and depth, empathy and compassion can bring about the end of the world. That's the kind of age we live in. And it doesn't seem to be like just a passing phase. And I think the state of American politics is with so much tension, anxiety, fear, and hatred passing back and forth between the right and the left. Um, in a way, I wonder, reflects our own kind of split that's, that we feel inside between fight or flight fear, circle the wagons, which is totally natural, 100% evolutionary. And the other side of um, what it means to be a human being, which is about care of the earth, care of one another, care of the widow, the orphan, the alien, the oppressed, um, something that's rooted in, in love rather than fear. We can feel these two sides. And I'm not trying to say the right is all about one and the left is all about the other, but the kind of split that's happening maybe reflects a, what, what also feels split in us, and we're not sure what to do about it. And Yeats's poem I find so profound, although it's very dark. Uh, he goes on, he said, Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely some second coming. Here's the apocalyptic language coming in. Surely the second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi, 
troubles my sight, a waste of desert sand, a shape with a lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs, while all about it wind shadows of the indignant desert birds. So there's a beast, an image that's coming up out of the spirit of the earth that's troubling out of the deserts, and it has these old apocalyptic images that are rooted in Babylonian mythology and Assyrian mythology and Persian mythology and Jewish mythology, uh, this lion-like creature or the sphinx itself with the head of a man, or Egyptian mythology that would be too, um, is moving out across the world. And he goes on in the last paragraph, and I'm not a, you know, a scholar of Yeats or something like that. I'm not sure what he's talking about. I haven't read any commentary, but the image of this beast coming, the darkness drops again. But now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. What rough beast! It's our come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. And here is where the poem, in a way, hints at this profound truth that things collapse and are born anew. That, and it's not a collapse that's just you know, intellectual or existential. No, people get hurt. People die. Um, when empires collide and crash and burn themselves up in a lust for power, these are real things that affect real people, ordinary, everyday, average people far from the halls of power. Uh, when, a, when our world just does what the world does, by creating storms that wash over beachfront properties and homes. Real people get hurt. Real people die. It's a tragedy. And at the same time, these powers, this sort of vexed nightmare, something also seems to slouch toward Bethlehem to be born, to be born again, to be renewed some remnant, some, some tiny shoot in the, in the ashes begins to creep up. When I was 19, I went to Yellowstone, and this was not too far, this was not too many seasons after Yellowstone's biggest fires. And I remember walking with my friend Derek for miles and miles through charred forest. And Everywhere, everywhere we look, looked, beneath the broken, charred-off tops of hundreds of pine trees were, was the next generation, were tiny shoots, were the smallest pine trees you can ever imagine, you know, smaller than Charlie Brown could imagine, are coming up out of the earth. 
coming up out of Bethlehem to be born, a second coming, so to speak. And um, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, part of me doubts, like, really? This is the way the world turns over? And the old ideas that we get from centuries of world powers and kings who became so arrogant that it led to self-destruction have taught us that, yes, this is the way it seems to be with empires and kingdoms. And maybe also with the earth, too. Um, cataclysmic earth events have happened, which have been incredible time periods of destruction and, an, and incredible opportunities for some new growth. So I don't know. These are the things that have been troubling me over the last few weeks. And I think I got this idea originally from Michael Mead, the mythologist. And hes I heard him say that we live in noatic times. <laughs> And in the midst of cataclysmic events, some of them we can control, some of them we cannot. Some of them we can pass laws to help mitigate even a little bit. Some of them um, seem beyond our human, present human imagination to do anything about. Maybe that's just a failure of imagination, I don't know. But I think we might be living in noatic times where some crazy dreamers are needed. And today, I, I think on this very day, if I'm not mistaken, they're debating the future of DACA, the so-called dreamers. What the world needs is actually dreamers because the present fixation that we have, which is a fixation rooted in a kind of false certainty. We know what we're talking about. We know how the system works. If we can just win on either side, if we can just be the winner and our values triumph, um, everything will be okay, but it doesn't seem to be working. We continue to find ourselves in gridlock and we have very, very few people who are rising to the occasion, willing to dream new dreams. But that's what um, we ought to have all of our senses attuned toward in the depths of our own soul. And back to last week's podcast, meaning um, our thinking, feeling, sensing, and imaginative, full-faceted self, alert scanning our own hearts and souls for the seeds of a new dream so we can take that personally and also be on the lookout for those who are beginning to offer something, offer a vision of the world yet unseen because that's the way it is. In the ashes, in the death of the Sphinx, comes some new creature in the fiery burn-up of the phoenix comes some new creature. That's, that's like 
those are the old, speaking of mythic imagination, that's what the old stories imagine. Even the book of Revelation, which is, I think, imagining the collapse of Rome and um, the dreamer, the visionary artist, imagines 144,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Caesar, which is a kind of dream. How can, how can there be 144,000 people who haven't swallowed the little pill offered by the leadership, who have said no? And, and suffered because of it. That's the story of the book of Revelation, that, that to prison and to death you shall go, says the writer. And yet at the same time, this sort of collapse and renewal, destruction, which is the very heart of Christianity, death and resurrection, leads to the possibility of some future kingdom. Now, instead of which is the very end of the book of Revelation, a new heaven and a new earth coming down and descending. And, you know, what we, what we tended to do was literalize all that, failing to see, I think, that the seeds of the new heaven and new earth are planted in, in the human heart and in the human soul. And by our own death and resurrection, by our own transformation, by our own... Um, and by having to go through a kind of collapse, something is called forth from within and some new way of uh, being in the world uh, begins to take root and take seed. And the writer has uses such extreme language. He says, and a tree grows and um, the fruit of the tree heals the nations. Now that is a dream worth dreaming. And that's 2000 years ago. That's the kind of, I'm not saying that exact dream, but um, maybe it calls for new dreamers and new images, but that seed of possibility in the middle of collapse where maybe there's a tree that can grow up out of the heart of the earth, out of which the nations will dine and will be healed, that is a generative, compassionate, soul-oriented, heartfelt dream worth dreaming rather than every other nation on the earth needs to be destroyed so that I can keep my my little piece of the pie and I can stay safe enough and no one can bother me and I'm going to call that freedom. That's not a vision of the world that um, will be anything but in the end kind of suicidal and collapse in on itself, the beginning of which we're already seeing. So I guess I'm wondering what boat building self is waking up, maybe culturally, maybe in you, what boat building self is beginning to craft a vessel for a world that no one can yet imagine, that people will even the best will just lack all conviction and they'll say, ah, what the hell can any of us do about it anyway? What 
Noah-like figure rests in your own being? What um, future world have uh, are you being called to get closer to? What what of your own mythic imagination is starting to wake up? And I don't think it can wake up without grief. Like Mary Oliver says, tell me about your despair and I, and I will tell you about mine. It is a season where we have to speak of the kind of despair and grief of, um, of the collapse of our own worldviews and the tremendous loss of life that is happening in every corner of our society and the social injustices and the oppressions and the cruelty that in some respects is, is, remains hidden much of the time but keeps coming out of hiding when we least expect it. So it definitely cannot come without grief. But like Joanna Macy suggests, grief is the fertile soil of change. And we have to learn to go out and cry and wail and allow the mystery to wake up uh, within us some new dream that wants to be born into the world. I'm thinking now of another Rilke poem, and I'll end with this. So Rilke says, these are the words we dimly hear. These are the words we dimly hear. You sent out beyond your recall. And that's what it feels like, being sent out beyond your recall. You're into the zone unknown, to use a lovely phrase from Joseph Campbell. You, sent out beyond your recall, go to the limits of your longing. I think in times of tragedy, we're even afraid to long. We're afraid of longing. We're afraid because we're afraid it's going to be, we're going to be bitterly disappointed. I long for a world where those who are, are having some sort of psychic breakdown or um, a moment of complete, what we would call insanity, don't have access to little private weapons of mass destruction and have the capacity to heal uh, to to harm um, more than 500 people in a matter of seconds. I long for that world, but that that longing, it seems like it's not even worth touching because I'm going to be bitterly disappointed. But here Rilke says not only touch upon it, but go to the limits, which is, I think, another way of saying, and what's beneath that? It's not just gun control, what's beneath that? It's not just nuclear disarmament, what's beneath that? Go to the limits of your longing, trust your longing, which I think is another way of really trusting that at the heart of human beings, although human beings are very complicated, very complex, we have the capacity for evil, I believe that 100%, we all do. We also have the capacity for good. We're also divine DNA. And to follow the limits of longing, 
takes us into a truer place of being in the world, not to a place of fear and anxiety and self-preservation. One of the things I think, by the way, that is most misunderstood about Darwin is that Darwin actually is the one, surprisingly, suggested that it's not survival of the fittest. That is an operating principle. But what he meant by the fittest, and this is true, those that had learned to cooperate as social units became the fittest and the ones who had the capacity to survive, which is not every man for himself, not a dog-eat-dog world that we often associate with Darwin. So even Darwin was very nuanced about um, the a more collective view where that includes the other being a necessary part of even survival. So go to the limits of your longing. And then Rilke says, embody me. These are the words we dimly hear. You sent out beyond your recall. Go to the limits of your longing. Embody me. Flare up like a flame. Make big shadows I can move in. I don't know exactly what Rilke is saying here. And sometimes I wonder if embody me is uh, his allusion to the divine or to God or to the source. But we're embodying something. And when we flare up to our fullest capacities, we are making shadows that even the divine is moving around in. In other words, if we can learn to, to trust the perilous pathway of our own longings to the truer seeds in the depth of our own being, when we move out into the world, we have, we have the possibility to flare up like a flame, to be a bright torch in a very dark um, apocalyptic age, uh, the shadows of which even the divine will move around it. That is the kind of dream that I think is worth dreaming.